Hypebeast culture isn't just about wearing certain brands or buying the most expensive clothes. They said I was crazy for buying a $500,000 bag, crazy for buying $2 million worth of Birkins. Hypebeast loyalty is about representing the story behind each item. It's about waiting in line for hours on the Lower East Side of Manhattan to get the latest Supreme collab. A crowbar, a brick can, you know, it can last forever. Those things will be in museums in 50 years. It's spending thousands of dollars on stuff you don't want for the chance to buy a $500,000 purse. For me to get that bag, sit on the wait list, I have to buy a bunch of scarves, and, you know, and bring coffee to my sales assistant and butter her up. And demand for these products keeps growing. When you get something that you really want that's really rare, you feel really good. And it's spawning a massive resale market. There was maybe one other guy in the whole world that had the exact same idea at the exact same time, and it happens to be you know, one of the most successful business people in the world. This is Suddenly Obsessed. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. These are Yeezys. People have camped out at shoe stores, hired taskers to wait in line on their behalf, and even used sneaker-buying bots to nab a pair online before they sell out in seconds. Others spent thousands of dollars on the resale market. The man behind that craze is Kanye West. But recently, some of that excitement has turned to skepticism. Are Yeezys Dead. dead. Is Yeezy resale dead? Is Yeezy still cool? Certain Yeezy models cost a lot less on the resale market than they used to, and resale prices are a telltale sign of a product's cachet, especially for hype beasts. But it turns out, this is all part of West's grand plan for his sneaker empire. Here's how West created one of the most hyped sneakers of all time and the struggles he's facing trying to build the brand into a household name. When I first got into sneakers back in middle school into high school, I just had this one pair of Adidas Superstars that I felt was the end-all be-all. Then I remember scrolling through my Facebook timeline and this beautiful red image of a pair of Kanye's uh, Red October Nike sneakers popped up on my feed. And that was the first time that I stopped to look at a sneaker, just from a purely piece of art point of view. And I just thought to myself, wow, I need to find a way to get those. Over the course of five years, West and Nike released the Air Yeezy 1, the Air Yeezy 2, and the Air Yeezy 2 Red Octobers. Retailing at over $200, the shoes were released in extremely limited quantities and sold out instantaneously. They now resell in the thousands of dollars. The success of the shoes finally put West on the map in the fashion industry. For years, his designs were met with ridicule. A lot of fashion gatekeepers tried to hold Kanye back by calling him a clothing maker or saying that he wasn't a real designer. Kanye West was really sort of passionate and desperate and really actually thoughtful. He didn't want to just be sort of a celebrity fashion designer. To break into the fashion industry, West interned at Fendi in 2009, where he was paid about $500 a month. In 2015, West even said he went $16 million in debt, trying to get a clothing line off the ground. 
But no matter what he did, he still couldn't quite knock down those doors. And so he took an alternative route through the sneaker world. Wes says he was a sneakerhead as a kid, even though he didn't have the money to buy the shoes he loved. When I was in fourth grade, I was drawing Jordans when my mama couldn't afford them. I was drawing those Jordans, getting kicked out of class for drawing them. West got his start as a producer on Jay-Z's 2001 album, The Blueprint. He hit it big as a hip-hop artist after releasing his own album, The College Dropout, in 2004. Then West set his sights on another passion of his, fashion. He even told a New York Fashion Week crowd in 2016 that his dream is to be the creative director of Hermes. While West had a difficult time getting people to buy into his clothing designs, his shoes instantly clicked with fans. The first pair of sneakers that really got me into sneaker collecting was that pair of Red October Yeezys. He articulated something in those sneakers that really resonated with me without saying a word, uh, me not knowing anything about them. That sneaker was the spark that cascaded the entire rest of everything you see here over the past uh, three plus years. In Yeezy's first eight years or so, hype around the shoe was at its strongest. Yeezy started as a partnership with Nike in 2009 before West switched to working with Adidas in 2013. During the Nike years and in the first few years of his partnership with Adidas, customers went to great lengths to get their hands on a pair. Any website you go to, Yeezys would probably sell out in under like five seconds. I've seen people camp for Yeezys in the dead cold winter. I've seen people like have like their little tents or whatever, um, or just bundled up in a lot of jackets or something. Caleb Chen is one of many sneaker flippers cashing in on the Yeezys hype. I've bought the Bread V2 uh, for about $220, and I've sold it for about $11 to $1,200. But some of West's designs have been an acquired taste. People have scratched their heads or recoiled at certain Yeezy models that West released with Adidas, like the Yeezy Boost 700 Wave Runner, which came out in 2017. It drew comparisons to ugly dad shoes. Everyone across the internet was just like, oh my God, what is this? This is disgusting. Is this a joke? And I had all those same thoughts, but thinking about the big picture, I said every other time people or myself have thought that exact same thing about a sneaker Kanye has put out, people eventually turn around and go, oh wow, I was wrong. I wish I jumped on those sneakers when I had the chance. But designing sneakers just for hype beasts wasn't good enough for West. That's why he ultimately left Nike for Adidas in 2013. More creative freedom, and to turn Yeezys into a household name. West told BBC Radio in 2013 that he didn't want to be just another celebrity with his name attached to a sneaker. People didn't love the Yeezys the way they did for no reason. Picture this, for me to do the Yeezys and not have a joint venture backing deal with Nike mm. the next day would have been like if I made Jesus Walks and was never allowed to make an album. West told Ryan Seacrest that he found the partner he was looking for in Adidas. They offered to allow me to make an entire line and give me an office and all these things I want to do just to create more. The hype around Yeezys fueled West's ambition, except the more shoes he released, the less special they became. If you look at somebody like Kanye West, he's truly one of the most ambitious people I think that we have seen in the past few decades. Kanye West has called himself Walt Disney, he's called himself Steve Jobs. So we know that it's not just about a physical sneaker, it's about when he is gone and we are talking about Kanye West, we don't talk about just the music, we talk about what he's created, what he's left us, his stamp on the world. West wants his Yeezy's legacy to go way beyond an expensive and inaccessible shoe. 
In fact, he wants quite the opposite. West spoke with Ryan Seacrest in 2015. This isn't about elitism. This isn't about separatism. This is about as many people being involved with this vision, you know, as possible. Eventually, everybody who wants to get Yeezys will get Yeezys. Adidas has promised me that because there's so many kids that have wanted them that couldn't get them. And I talked to the heads at Adidas and they said, we can make them. Instead of demand for Yeezys being built on rarity and hype, West wants everyone to be able to find and afford a pair of Yeezys and still want them. Kind of like the Adidas Superstar, which are readily available at their typical retail cost of $100 and under. And it was the top-selling sneaker in the United States in 2016. The Superstar debuted in 1970. To this day, it's still an iconic emblem of the Adidas brand. However, the Superstar's popularity is cyclical. And sales have declined in the last couple years. Now, Adidas is betting on Kanye West and doubling down on Yeezys. If the goal is to scale Yeezy into a multi-billion dollar brand, experts say there's still a long way to go. The Yeezy brand has a fundamental impact on our overall brand position, but it's still in the bigger context of us being a $25 billion company, you know, a small part of our company. There were probably a million, maybe a million and a half Yeezys sold last year in pairs in the United States and throughout the world. Uh, Adidas made 400 million pairs of shoes last year. A million pairs of Yeezys is really a drop in the ocean. There's a reason why there are the numbers of shoes are made by Adidas for Yeezy. It's not because there's no factory space to build the shoes. They simply are creating this artificial sense of scarcity. When you think about it in that light, it, it really tells you that the product can't be a, a larger story. It, it, it has to be limited in what it brings. In other words, demand for Yeezys just isn't strong enough to produce the shoe in much larger quantities. Nike and Adidas have never revealed how many Yeezys they release per drop. But West said in 2015 that there were 9,000 pairs of his first Adidas shoe, the Yeezy Boost 750. He then boasted to Harper's Bazaar in 2016 that he was consistently selling out 40,000 shoe drops in two minutes. But Adidas was also dropping Yeezys less frequently back then. The German sportswear company tested the extent of demand for Yeezys in 2018 by restocking several popular Yeezy models in much larger quantities. In September 2018 came the largest Yeezys drop ever. There were rumors that over a million pairs of 350 V2 triple whites had hit the market in what Adidas called its most democratic drop in Yeezy history. West tweeted about the event, saying the release fulfills Yeezy's democracy philosophy. But suddenly, the shoes were lingering on shelves, and flooding the market with Yeezys cost the brand some of its cachet. They did sell out, yes, but it took a lot, much longer than it had. It wasn't selling out in, in hours. The, the lines were lost, and, and, and frankly, the sentiment that I saw on Twitter was pretty negative. There was an attitude out there that Yeezy was over. Yeezys tend to be dying. Is Yeezy resale dead? Do they not want them to be hyped? I remember going into a store and seeing them sitting on shelves. Dude, this whole Yeezy thing is quite possibly just like done. By appealing more to the masses, the Yeezy brand has alienated some of its initial fan base. To a certain extent, I think Yeezys have lost some of its uh, wow factor. You start to think like, oh man, the chase isn't as there anymore because more people can get the shoe. Scarcity is really important because ultimately, hypebeast and sneaker culture love to flex. They love to have what the other person doesn't have. That's all they operate in is essentially clout and bragging rights. Today, buying and reselling certain models of Yeezys is a lot less profitable than it once was. 
Resale prices on many Yeezy models have plunged after a few re-releases of the same shoe or releases of the same model of shoe in a slightly different color. Once the resale price of a shoe reaches its original retail price, it means supply has met demand. It's become apparent about how many people really want Yeezys. And to keep people wanting Yeezys, analysts say it's critical to make sure supply stays behind demand. The reasoning is simple. When everybody can get one, nobody wants one. Powell says Yeezy's staying power will be determined by how carefully Adidas manages its Yeezy's inventory. It's really critical that brands don't try to grow too fast here. It really is, takes a tremendous amount of, of strategic thinking and discipline to build a brand around a celebrity. Powell says Yeezy's could look to Jordan's as an example of how to grow a brand while maintaining its cool factor. After all, it took Nike three decades to build its iconic Jordan brand, a collaboration between Nike and former NBA superstar Michael Jordan, into a $3 billion business. For years, the Jordan business grew about 10% a year because that's all that Nike allowed to go into the market was about 10% more. They could have been put in 20 or 30 or 50% more and probably sold them in the first year, but it would have been gone after that. But Powell says Nike made a mistake when it flooded the market with too many Jordans in 2017 and 2018. And the brand has lost its cachet. Now, can they build it back? Yes, but it will take years. In 2019, Adidas has taken a step back. CEO Casper Rorsted told investors in May there won't be any significant growth in the Yeezy business in fiscal year 2019. Adidas won't be repeating another massive Yeezys drop in 2019. Instead, the shoes are being released in more limited quantities throughout the year. The goal is to rebuild hype around the brand. Experts say it will be a long time before West can achieve his vision. A sneaker that everyone wants and thinks is really cool, even if it's not that hard to get. Let me go establish this. Supreme is the best. So I put Supreme on my shirt, it's on my chest. You gotta have Supreme or you will be a hater because you know Supreme is super elevated. This is Supreme, the streetwear brand that's rapidly changing the retail industry. People have broken into fights, waited hours, and entered lotteries just to get inside. While clothing stores are shuttering all over the world, Supreme is expanding, and the main reason is these guys, better known as hype beasts. With its limited production, Supreme is known for creating scarcity with each release. And with no paid marketing whatsoever, Supreme has grown from a small, underground streetwear brand into a $1 billion global phenomenon. My name is Joe Migraine. I've been a Supreme collector for better part of eight years now. Joe's sprawling Supreme collection has been valued to be over $100,000, featuring dozens of skate decks and rare pieces of apparel. But his favorite? The accessories are always what is very interesting to me. They, they're always out of left field. They always surprise you. And there's just a very collectible and a very interesting aspect about all of them. From pinball machines to nunchucks, crowbars, even a brick. Hype beasts like Joe, who treat supreme items like valuable artifacts, are why the brand has its seemingly unshakable reputation. But its most popular item will always be... The box logo tee is probably the most iconic item. The box logo merchandise and Supreme tends to sell for four to five X what it retailed for. What's great about the Supreme logo is, is its simplicity. It's simple, it's clean, it pops, and in our ADD culture, that logo breaks through 
The fashion industry spends $500 billion on advertising each year, but you won't find Supreme on billboards or magazines. It doesn't spend money on marketing their products at all. Everyone wants attention, everyone wants to do marketing, everyone wants you know, influencers wearing their product, and Supreme operates the exact opposite way. The magic lies in their ability to take word of mouth marketing and turn the launches of their products into sort of micro experiential events. In 1994, Founder James Debbia opened its flagship store in Soho, New York City, on Lafayette Street. Since then, Supreme has used a combination of high-profile brand collaborations and incredibly small production quantities to its advantage. But choking the supply wasn't necessarily a strategic decision. According to Jebbia, they didn't want to get stuck with unwanted inventory. This method is core to the company's business model, making every launch a press-worthy event and each item a limited edition collector's piece with skyrocketing value on the resale market. What did this retail for? 40, 50? 45 maybe. And then resale is probably two or 300 for a black medium. I'll never wear it. The narrative is that Supreme sells a t-shirt for, let's say, $30. It sells out immediately at retail, and then people are paying on the aftermarket three, four, five, six x what it costs in the store. It's kind of like uh, investing in something that you know will retain its value, that you know will rarely ever go below what you paid for it, and then there's always a good chance that you will make more money than you spent on it. Every drop creates a sort of mania, attracting a market of young resellers, some collectors even self-identifying as addicts. Supreme Yankees box logo t-shirt, it was $44. Highest bid is currently $470, and the cheapest anyone's willing to let it go is $617. Leopard fanny pack retail was $68, and you can purchase it for $300 on StockX right now. The classic black box logo hoodie. This retailed for $148, and that now the cheapest on StockX is $1,100. What makes for a successful brand is when that brand becomes an extension of self. It becomes a personal statement for the people who are using it. And in the case of Supreme, uh, became a badge of cool. But getting that badge of cool can be incredibly difficult, which gives opportunistic resellers a chance to make a killing during drops. I've been asking everyone walking out the store to sell me items, sell me items. No one wants to sell. It's so easy to do this. I just don't think enough people know. This summer, I made about $10,000. So it's a pretty good summer job for me. Like, everyone wants to hold their items and wait for market to rise to sell. It's almost like uh, an addiction. Like, you buy one thing and you really like it, and then every week there's new Supreme items. It has its highs and its lows when you get something that you really want that's really rare. You feel really good, but on the flip side of that is if there's something that you've kind of been waiting for all season, when you don't get it, it's a really sour feeling, and then the problem is that the price is likely two or three or four times what Supreme sold it for. Even this plastic bag has some resale to it. You have around 10, someone would, would be willing to buy it off you. And when you can penetrate the day-to-day -day lifestyle of your target audience in that way, that's a home run for a brand.
Increasingly crowded storefronts, launch day brawls, and angry retail neighbors have led Supreme to implement a lottery system with each product launch to reduce overcrowding. Supreme is only open to the public during their seasonal drops, and they only release new merchandise on Thursdays. To get in, you have to sign up by 11 a.m. on Tuesday before the drop. Registry fills up insanely fast. If you get in, you'll get a text the day of the launch. Then you'll get another one telling you what time you can come. And then you can possibly wait in line for you know up to three to four hours just to get inside. With increasingly publicized collaborations, Supreme's notoriety has led to both wanted and unwanted attention. In 2017, Jebbia confirmed that half the company was sold for $500 million to the Carlisle Group, a private equity corporation. But the public doesn't seem to care, yet. How much is our outfit worth? Companies make investments in order to grow those investments. And so it's likely that the plan would be to expand the brand, sell more merchandise, and profit further. But Supreme is managing to maintain its street cred. You know, the evidence shows that they haven't stopped being who they are. Everything has been done exactly the same. And, you know, they've been fighting some big legal battles. A corporation like the Carlaw Group at your disposal to help fight those battles is something that they definitely need. Supreme has 11 stores in total, with seven located outside of the U.S. International fans, especially those in countries where Supreme doesn't have a footprint, will pay just about any price to get their hands on authentic Supreme. The only way they can get their hands on this genuine apparel is on the secondary market. There's a lot of Chinese people here that have buyers overseas, and they have these people here, and they have lists of prices that they're willing to pay. They come up, they pay for it right away. They pull out thousands of dollars in cash. They'll pay anything. The Asian resale market is, is definitely, definitely big. If you live in a country that, you know, you can't buy online from, your only options are buying it from eBay, which you, you might be dealing with fakes. The other effect of product scarcity has been the rise in fakes. Biggest fake Supreme store in the world. But I actually look dead ass identical, man. Like, that's mad. That's actually crazy. Which in March of 2019 resulted in a highly publicized lawsuit between Supreme and Supreme Italia, a brand with an identical logo that Supreme denounced as counterfeit. Since then, Supreme Italia has opened stores in Europe and Asia, in countries Supreme has yet to reach. A lot of people who know, really know about Supreme, they're against it. Like, they will never buy that shit. They can compare every detail, from the stitching, to the logo part, to the pattern, and to the label. But do people really care if the box logo on their tee is official Supreme merchandise? When you buy streetwear, you're doing it to be part of a particular community. To circumvent the barriers to entry by buying a fake kind of misses the whole point. It's not about owning the Supreme t-shirt, it's about the concept of understanding the culture and putting yourself out there. I personally hate fakes, I'll never wear fakes, I don't want to own fakes, I don't want to look at fakes, I hate them. The legal battle also sparked a hypocrisy debate, with critics alleging that Supreme plagiarized their logo, whose design is nearly identical the work of artist Barbara Kruger to begin with. Good artists copy, great artists steal. Yeah. Like that's just kind of the name of the game with fashion. The red Futura Bold is exactly like Barbara Kruger's artwork, but it's, it is what it is. An irony that's not lost on Barbara Kruger. Supreme has continued their strong presence in the fashion industry, but the future of Supreme could be uncertain with private equity stakeholders involved. If the brand does go mass, it is, you know, contradictory to the way that it built its model with the, the limited edition releases. And that stands to 
potentially compromise its street cred. You can start to tell by what the public perception is and what people are writing on the internet and talking about. But also, you can tend to tell by if the resale value is declining or if the number of sales are declining that you know, the company is in decline. But Supreme seems to be getting bolder with their designs, keeping hype beasts loyal to the brand. Supreme is very self-aware and knows exactly what they're doing. And they were like, yeah, we're going to do a brick and everyone's going to talk about it. I think they just continually push the boundary for like what's possible. The reason why people want to wear Supreme is because they want a piece of culture. A crowbar, a brick can, you know, it can last forever. Those things will be in museums in 50 years. When you're carrying a bag that's worth more than people's cars and houses, that's symbolic of success. $500,000 can get you a 3,000 square foot home in Las Vegas, a Ferrari 458, or this purse. In 2019, a diamond encrusted Crocodile Hermes Birkin bag sold for, yup, $500,000. They said I was crazy for buying a $500,000 bag, crazy for buying $2 million worth of Birkins. Well, I already got offered $680,000 for this bag, $180,000 markup within six months. Dave Wancha has joined the most exclusive purse club in the world with members like Melania Trump, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, Miranda Kerr, Jennifer Lopez, and Floyd Mayweather. Victoria Beckham reportedly has a collection of 100 Birkins worth about $2 million. The Kardashians and Jenners have walls in their closets dedicated to Birkins. Birkin bags made by French luxury brand Hermes range in price from around $10,000 into the hundreds of thousands, depending on the material and rarity. So how did the Birkin bag go from a $2,000 accessory at its inception in 1984 to a $500,000 status symbol in 2019? The Birkin bag, named after the actress Jane Birkin, wasn't an immediate hit. But Hermes used clever marketing and tightly controlled production to turn the bag into an international symbol of access and wealth by the late 90s. In 2001, an appearance on Sex and the City solidified the Birkin's place in pop culture. But even then, the starting price of a new Birkin was about $4,000. Today, that price is about $10,000. When the dust bag separates and you see the first peak of the handles and you get to see the glimpse of the color, I mean, there's like an electrical little beat that happens, which I can't compare to anything else. Monica Aurora collects Birkin bags and founded luxury fashion news site PurseBop.com. Aurora asked that we protect her identity to maintain the anonymity of her online persona. Why is an Hermes unboxing one of the most viewed videos on YouTube? Either we aspire to have that experience or we long to repeat the experience. The day I purchased my first Birkin, I just remember smiling from ear to ear. And that was even before I saw the bag. And so the next step was for us to go into this, I call it a secret room. It's kind of camouflaged with, with mirrors on the outside. From a family where you don't have people walking around with, you know, five or $10,000 bags. So I just thought, wow, this is, like, look what I've, you know, what I've accomplished for myself. Okay, okay, I've heard so much about this mystical Birkin bag. I have to see one for myself. I'm about to walk into this Hermes store and ask for a Birkin bag. I'm nervous. Uh. 
So apparently they're out of stock for the next year. Okay, I guess you can't just walk into Hermes and buy a Birkin because you want to. The company has severely limited supply to the special few it's deemed worthy of the bag. And that just makes you want it more. I was offered my first Birkin a little after a year, year and a half. I spent about $10,000 at Hermes before I was able to purchase my first Birkin. It took well over two years from the moment I walked into the boutique with my girlfriends to express my desire in the Birkin and to actually receive that magical phone call where they invite you to see if you would like to purchase the one that they have available for you. You have to build that relationship with the sale associate and build up a purchase history. The Birkin market breaks all the rules of normal commerce as we know it. You can literally have $20,000 of cash. You can have anything you want, but that will not entitle you to the experience of owning a Birkin when you walk into the store. So there is this game that escalates the desire, which is the unavailability. Part of the excitement is that chase. To some, the Birkin bag has become an aspirational object, rewarding buyers with a feeling of importance and belonging. The sense of exclusivity is no accident. Hermes CEO Axel Dumas told Forbes in 2014 that our business is about creating desire. Hermes is a drug. Collectors are sort of like Hermes junkies. Each Birkin is handmade by a single craftsman in France. Experts say the craftsmanship is impeccable, but at its core, it's just a bag. Like Apple, Hermes's success lies in its ability to create an emotional connection to its products. Both companies create desire for products that are truly unique and beautiful and that we not only want, but we actually need in our life, as in needing beauty and needing the emotional power that we gain by owning a Birkin bag. The Birkin bags setting new record-breaking sales aren't your everyday Birkins, but the very rare ones. Hermes has effectively gamified the experience of purchasing a Birkin bag. In doing so, the Birkin bag has become a collector's item, driving increased demand for the extremely rare and expensive ones. That first Birkin escalates the desire for the next one. And as collectors transition through time, you desire and aspire to be offered increasingly rare handbags for your collection. Experts say Hermes only sells its rarest Birkins and Kellys, a close cousin to the Birkin, to its VIP collectors. The rarest Hermes bags often sport unique designs and are made of exotic materials. They also often sell for a lot more on the resale market than at Hermes. Take the diamond-encrusted Himalayan Birkin, named for its resemblance to the snowy Himalayan mountains. One Himalayan Birkin sold for $380,000, setting a new record at auction in 2017. Most top clients will come to us and say, I want this bag at any cost. And it's those bags that we sell for, you know, the record-breaking prices, whereas it would have retailed for maybe half that amount. If you can't find it on the primary market, that's when clients come to the secondary market and are forced to pay you know, a kind of record-breaking price. Because the value of rare Birkins can increase dramatically at resale, collectors see them as an investment. A 2017 study found that the growth in value of the Birkin outpaced gold and the S&P 500 between 1984 and 2016. There are about 1 million Birkin bags in existence, according to one analyst estimate. And experts caution that as tastes and styles change, the value of those bags could plummet. 
Collectors rely on professional Birkin bag hunters like Jane Anger of Jane Finds to help manage their Birkin bag portfolios. Buying and selling Birkins is like playing the stock market. We really know where the market is going, what to buy and what not to buy, what to sell, what to go long on. Engert says her clients have included the likes of Kim Kardashian, Floyd Mayweather, a Russian oligarch, and the Saudi royal family. I have a client that collects Ferraris. He recently had me find matching uh, Birkin and Kelly for the Ferraris. Engert uses her connections with VIP collectors around the world to hunt down the rarest and most expensive Birkins. Collectors are increasingly turning toward the rarest Birkins now that it's so easy to buy a Birkin on the resale market. The resale market for Birkins has exploded. It's so difficult to purchase the bag directly from Hermes that resellers are offering the instant gratification some buyers crave. While I was turned down at Hermes, I had my pick of Birkin bags when visiting the Carlsbad, California headquarters of luxury consignment chain Fashion File. The company says it has about 200 to 300 Birkin bags in stock at any given time and a variety of other Hermes knickknacks. So things that you kind of suspect people bought on their way to trying to buy a Birkin. It's, you know, it's what you do. Fashion File isn't the only company you can now buy a Birkin bag from instantaneously. Investors are pouring money into luxury consignment retailers like Fashion File, The Real Real, Rebag, and StockX. When Googling Birkin bags, I even got a hit on Walmart.com. The proliferation of Birkin bags on the resale market has collectors scrambling to find even more rare and expensive bags. It's just elevated the game of the collector to wanting something even more rare. We're looking to satiate a desire for something special. So if everybody has it, or if everybody can have it, then it's not so special anymore. But if you want a new Birkin immediately on the secondary market, instead of jumping through all the hoops with Hermes, be prepared to pay a premium. For Hermes, for me to get that bag, sit on the wait list, I have to buy a bunch of scarves and agendas and belts and, and you know and bring coffee to my sales assistant and butter her up i'll pay 1500 bucks more now and it's probably cheaper than going through that entire process go to hermes buy a birkin come straight to fashion file i can guarantee you'll pay at least a thousand dollars more for that bag but one of the biggest challenges on the resale market is screening for fakes and the birkin is harder to authenticate because of how good the fakes are the counterfeiters know that this is a thirteen thousand plus dollar bag and so they're saying, we can invest a lot of money in this particular piece because we're going to get thousands of dollars out of it. To see how good the fakes are, I bought a counterfeit Birkin on Canal Street in Chinatown. That was a lot different than going to Hermes. They gave it to me in this black bag. Then we put some experts to the test. So you use dental tools to dissect the Birkin to see if it's real. Yes, I feel like a detective. Lauda Chavez-Sains examines every bag's date stamp, stitching, materials, and hardware. Other authenticators even smell their bags. This is a fake. <laughs> like a TJ Maxx scent? <laughs> Something like this smells here. like leather. How much does this bag cost? On the secondary market, this would be in the 15 to 20 range. Why would anyone pay $20,000 for a purse? Well, it's not just a purse, it's an investment. It's not $20,000 spent, it's $20,000 that's sitting in your closet. Uh, okay, what should I say? Hi, I'm just browsing. Do you have any Birkin bags? If you're loving this episode, please leave a review and comments down below. This is StockX, a stock market for all kinds of things. Smells good. 
Ready to go? You can buy or sell items like a pair of these Jordan 5 Retro Trophy Room sneakers, this Supreme box logo hooded sweatshirt, an Hermes Birkin bag and Himalayan crocodile, or a Rolex Oyster Perpetual watch. You can even find extremely rare Pokemon cards, like this Charizard Hollow 1999 Pokemon base set. In November 2018, StockX sold its most expensive item ever, a $70,000 trunk from Louis Vuitton and Supreme. StockX does about 20,000 sales of merchandise a day. And by June of 2019, the Detroit-based company reportedly reached a $1 billion valuation. Here's how StockX went from a simple price guide for sneakers to a reselling empire. Meet Josh Luber. This camera? The co-founder of StockX. I have the exact same story as every other 42-year-old sneakerhead. You know, I grew up playing basketball when Jordan played. I always wanted Air Jordan, and so I literally have sneakers from when I was probably eight. Before StockX, Luber had nothing to do with buying or selling sneakers. He ran three tech startups and joined the corporate world as a consultant at IBM in 2010. I almost intentionally avoided creating any businesses that had to do anything with sneakers. Almost out of fear of creating a business that was just an excuse to play with sneakers. But while analyzing data at IBM, Luber realized eBay was the biggest marketplace for sneaker reselling. eBay played a bigger role, but also it was really more up to the consumer to find the buyer. But the problem with eBay was that each reseller would list different prices for the same product. If you go to eBay and you search for the shoes I'm wearing, I'm wearing Jordan 1 Royal, you'll get a thousand listings. And you have to decide you buy from this person or that person, why is this one 600, why is that one 800? Luber figured that the sneaker reselling market would benefit from following the stock exchange model, which means every stock listed on the exchange has one true market value. That system helps alleviate uncertainty. You don't buy a share of Nike stock and then go home and your friend says, I got that cheaper on Amazon. Like, no, like there's one market price for that. So in 2012, Luber started a side project called Campless, which was essentially a shoe reselling price guide for sneakerheads. Luber would scrape valuable data from eBay resellers and obtain all of the information about closed auctions for all sneakers sold on the platform. Slowly, Campless started gaining reputation and people started reaching out. People started emailing and saying, hey, you know, I love sneakers, I love data, can I help? In fact, Luber had a volunteer team of 17 people. They were on the same mission, to make informed decisions before buying or selling expensive sneakers on the resale market. I could look at someone's whole sneaker collection and I could say what the whole sneaker collection is worth. And then I could look at their sneaker collection the same way you look at a stock portfolio and just track its value over time. And then the logic is, well, if you understood asset pricing and you understand portfolio construction, then perhaps we could create an actual stock market for sneakers. The only problem, someone with extremely deep pockets had a very similar idea. Enter Dan Gilbert. The Cleveland Cavaliers owner and billionaire investor's sons were also buying and selling sneakers through eBay. Gilbert's on industry, prime for disruption. So he put together a team to build a sneaker stock market, but it didn't take long before they discovered Campless. In April 2015, Luber took a call from Gilbert's team. They wanted him to fly to Cleveland on short notice to meet Gilbert on his home court. Four days later on Easter Sunday, Luber met Gilbert for a Cavs game, and Luber wore his Tiffany Dunks. We get there and we kind of make small talk before the game, and then after the game, we go back in this private room, and that's where we realized that we were both trying to build a sneaker stock market. 
That actually lended to them uh, kidnapping me and taking me to Detroit for the next two days. Luber left IBM in May 2015. One month later, Gilbert invested in Campless for an undisclosed amount. StockX was launched in February 2016. And so it was a pretty crazy serendipitous, you know, happening. The fact that there was maybe one other guy in the whole world that had the exact same idea at the exact same time, and it happens to be, you know, one of the most successful business people in the world. StockX retained the real-time shoe pricing and analytics that made Campus a crowd favorite among sneakerheads and added an online marketplace. Since the existence of StockX, I've sold $67,000. Since then, I've done about $170,000 in sales. Here's how StockX works. StockX acts like a middleman between buyers and sellers. Buyers place bids and sellers post asks. Both the buyer and the seller are completely anonymous throughout the entire transaction. Sellers don't have to upload photos or write product descriptions. Once the seller accepts an offer, the seller ships the product to StockX. StockX authenticates the item and releases the money to the seller. Then StockX ships the item to the buyer. StockX charges a 3% payment processing fee and a transaction fee of up to 14.5%. The more someone sells on StockX, the lower the transaction fee. But the biggest beneficiaries of StockX may be the buyers. If someone is going to spend $600 on a pair of sneakers, they shouldn't have to worry about buying a fake. From day one, we um, authenticated every product at StockX, and that was always going to be the case. And so if you're a 15-year-old kid and you're spending up all your money and saving up all your money to buy a pair of Yeezys, you know you're never going to get a fake pair of Yeezys. Massive amount of value there. But it wasn't until the release of the Air Jordan 1 bread on September 3rd, 2016, that they realized just how big the market was for a company like StockX. We did about 300 sales that day, and we'd only been doing about 50 or 60 a day up until that point. And that's when we knew that like the model was better, right? It was just watching trades come off the board and, and watching the, the spread close down to, to dollars at a time. We're like, wow, like, I think this is really going to work. The company has raised a total of $160 million from an impressive roster of outside investors, from Eminem and Mark Wahlberg to former Victoria's Secret model Carly Kloss. StockX announcing their most recent Series C funding round, where they raised over $100 million, which officially values their company at $1 billion. But to understand how StockX grew so rapidly in such a crowded market, we need to look at the evolution of the sneaker resale industry over the past few decades. We actually should go back to the 70s. That's Elizabeth Semelhack, creative director and senior curator at the Bata Shoe Museum. In locations specifically within New York City and its boroughs, as sneakers began to become associated with ideas of expressing individuality through fashion consumption, particularly in relation to breaking and hip hop, a new word entered the pop culture lexicon, dead stock. One of the things that early sneakerheads, if you want to call them that, uh, began to do was to go and try to find dead stock. And so dead stock are things that sit on somebody's shelves, maybe in a back room somewhere that just never sold, that are overstocked. And it was in looking at shoe retailers who had dead stock and finding these rare shoes and then breaking them out that I think created the first steps towards wanting to have the rare and um, unique finds. And it was around that time when some of the first big sneaker collaborations and releases happened. In 1984, the first pair of Nike Air Jordans was released. In 1986, Adidas partnered with the hip-hop group Run DMC. 
1989, Reebok launched the pump sneaker for a whopping $170. All of these ideas of fashion, masculinity, basketball, hip hop, and price point come together in the mid 80s. In 1995, eBay was born and it didn't take long for sneakerheads to start selling hard to find shoes on the site. All of a sudden now there's a platform by which people can begin to do this exchange in earnest and dollar amounts could be assigned to sneakers. While eBay created a place for consumers to buy and sell items, the rise of social media put the resale market on steroids. The sneaker community was almost like a dark place, like it was a niche market before Instagram, because now you start to see everyone wear shoes. The riches of the rich and you know, people who are still trying to get by and make a living, they're wearing the same things. And I think that Instagram brought all of that together. Apps like Instagram and Facebook allowed users to not only show off their collections, but to buy and sell their products directly with each other. Hi, Hi CNBC, we're the Chicks with Kicks, and come take a look at the largest sneaker collection. Ariana, Dresden, and Dakota Peters are the sisters behind a more than 6,000 pair sneaker collection. They inherited nearly 5,000 pairs of sneakers from their father, Douglas Roy Peters. These Chicks with Kicks have been selling some of their sneakers through Instagram. They've made more than $250,000 in sales so far. Instagram is so easy and you don't pay fees. So there's really no reason to look elsewhere. For the everyday just, you know, buyer of one pair or the seller of a few pairs, Instagram probably wouldn't be fit for them. And that's where StockX and those types of companies come in because they're safeguarded and, and you know you're, you're safe. Selling went from niche to mainstream, which meant some enterprising people started making good money peddling hard-to-get items. And when there's money involved, you can count on someone gaming the system. That was the hardest part about being able to deal sneakers. It was like you were so scared to get a fake pair of shoes that sometimes you just stayed away from it. Luber says StockX addressed three things that were missing in the sneaker resale market. Structure, transparency, and most importantly, authenticity. In fact, a robust authentication process was put in place at the company's launch. The challenge is finding authenticators who are able to consistently spot fakes. The higher the price of an item, the better the counterfeit. We couldn't go to, to LinkedIn and find sneaker authenticator. That job didn't exist. We had to build it. We had to create that job. We had to create that process. So StockX bought a bunch of real and fake shoes and dissected them, documented the differences, and created training manuals. The company even developed a proprietary technology process and established difficulty levels. The Balenciaga, there's a lot of fakes in this. It's very hard to authenticate it. So when I catch a fake, I, uh, I get happy and I just scream, fake! Authenticators have to go through a 90-day training program to ensure that they can review any sneaker that comes through the door. I've done over 600, 700 transactions uh, selling and buying. So, you know, my experience has been absolutely great. Today, StockX has six authentication centers and it employs over 100 authenticators around the world. And now that the company is also selling streetwear, handbags, watches, and collectibles, the authentication process has become even more critical to its ongoing success. But as the reselling market keeps growing, maintaining a rigorous authentication process is proving to be a challenge for all players in the resale space. In November of 2019, a CNBC investigation found that The Real Real, 
the world's largest online marketplace for luxury items, and one of StockX competitors had used copywriters and not so-called experts to authenticate numerous items and had also sold counterfeit merchandise. The company has stood by its authentication process. Transparency is going to be very important. You see, the real real has had some trouble with that. They stand behind their authentication process, but it's bringing to light to consumers potential issues there. So retailers really need to give consumers insight into that authentication process to you know, make sure that they're comfortable with what they're getting. The current overall resale market is about a $24 billion industry. And in 2019, the sneaker resale market alone was estimated to be worth over $2 billion in the U.S. With that much money on the line, big players and traditional retailers are investing heavily in online reseller marketplaces. Bigger players and traditional retailers are investing in resale. If you think about Foot Locker's investment in GOAT, Neiman Marcus's investment in Fashion File, Farfetch's purchased outright of stadium goods, Really, they feel this is important and this is the direction they should be moving because this is where there's growth coming. Even eBay is trying to regain its place as a destination for sneaker resellers. In December 2019, eBay announced that it would be eliminating North American selling fees on any sneaker sold at $100 or more, creating a ripple throughout the industry. In fact, the lines between resale and retail are beginning to blur. In October 2019, StockX teamed up with Adidas to create three exclusive pairs of Adidas Campus 80s, releasing a total of 999 pairs on the platform. And in December 2019, eBay partnered with Stadium Goods to launch its own series of sneaker drops. StockX owes its success to the popularity of American companies like Nike and Supreme, but its fastest growing market is actually Europe. In fact, almost a quarter of StockX business is happening outside of the U.S. That's why it opened a 35,000-square-foot authentication center in Eindhoven, Netherlands in August 2019. StockX CEO Scott Cutler says that at some point the company will explore going public. But Luber wants to take his stock market of things concept even further. Retail pricing is completely antiquated. There's no reason to create an arbitrary number to attach to a pair of sneakers when the Jordan 1 Travis Scott dropped. They retail for $175, but we're immediately reselling for $1,500. Like that just doesn't make sense at all. If you have variable pricing, if you can be able to put products into the market at a true market value, then that shoe maybe goes in the market at, at $700 or $800 or, or something way more than $175, probably less than $1,500. Luber says the ultimate goal is for brands to release products directly on StockX, moving the company from middleman to primary seller. The idea would be for StockX's customers to set the true value of a product at the onset. And that's really the, the future of StockX and to be somewhat cliche, probably the future of all e-commerce, which is for certain products, not all products, but for certain products that are supply and demand constrained to let the market set the price, to literally IPO those products into existence and get rid of retail pricing for them. StockX's rise isn't that hard to understand. The company is simply copying the rules of the stock market and the way it understands value. Now on to the next.